You're listening to a sermon from Sojourn East. And our scripture this morning comes from Luke 13, 18 through 21. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched on its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. If you're visiting with us today, my name is Kevin, and I want to thank you for joining us this morning. Before we get into today's text, would you pray with me? God, you, you are a God who speaks, and you've spoken in many ways. You've spoken through the prophets. You spoke most clearly through your Son, Hebrews tells us, and you've, you've spoken through your word, and you continue to speak through your word. I pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to comprehend the word you have for us, that your spirit would take the words from these pages and would work them into our hearts so that we might be transformed. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. When I was in third grade, I was introduced uh, to the movie A Christmas Story. And any Christmas Story fans? Okay, there's a few. Like, it's, it's polarizing. It's a little bit like black licorice or cilantro. You know, the people who love it and hate it. But when I watched it, I, it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. I was third grade and just didn't know that humans were capable of achieving such art. And so... Uh, for several months, actually, I would come home from school and I would pop in the VHS and I just watched it every single day. It was the 80s, you know, like that's, there wasn't a lot to do. And there was so much of it that just kind of got worked into my imagination for better or worse. But there are so many lessons. I remember one in particular, though, when I watched the movie, if you're familiar with it, Ralphie, he mails away for a little orphan Annie decoder pin. And... Every day, he runs to the mailbox, and he's like waiting and anticipating to get the decoder pin. Finally, it arrives, and he is so excited. He listens to the radio. He writes down uh, whatever the, the, the code is, and then he locks himself away in the bathroom to engage in the work of kind of clandestine cryptography. He wants to know what the secret message is, and if you'll remember, it's be sure to drink your Ovaltine. And he just says, a crummy commercial. And that's kind of how the scene ends. And I remember it because I remember that feeling. I knew that feeling. I knew that feeling of all of this excitement and expectation that you can't wait for the thing to come and then you get the thing and it's, it's not really what you thought it was going to be. You know, the commercials, my wife and I were talking about this. For me, it was the Micro Machines, if you remember those in the 80s. I think they got banned because kids were choking on them. But there are these tiny little matchbox cars. And you'd see the commercials, and it's like they're flying and zooming around. And then you'd get them, and they're just kind of, you know, just little plastic. My wife said the same thing for her Barbies. She's like, they always had so much fun in the commercials. And then I would get them, and they, they weren't nearly as fun. 
so much of our life, it's shaped by our expectations and what we think is going to happen, and then we have what does happen. And whether it be, you know, a first day of high school, going to college, first day on a job, when our expectations are met or exceeded, we're like, wow, that's amazing. But when our expectations fall short, or our experiences, sorry, fall short of our expectations, we tend to feel some disappointment. We tend to feel a crummy commercial, really. And the truth is that the more important something is, the more powerful our expectations can be. It's one of the reasons that we tell every couple that wants to get married in our church, you have to go through premarital counseling. Because half of what we do there is we talk about expectations. We seek to name them and tame them because... If you have too lofty of expectations of your spouse, it can actually really be destructive in your marriage. But nowhere in life are expectations more powerful and more perilous than in our spiritual lives. Nowhere are they more powerful or perilous than than when it comes to our relationship and our expectations of God. In today's passage... Jesus is seeking to name and in some ways tame and in some ways just explain the nature of the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God for many of us, it's a difficult concept for us to grasp. We live in a democracy, not a monarchy. We hear kingdom of God and we think of kind of this abstract, metaphorical, spiritual kind of thing. But the kingdom of God, really, it's a central theme in the New Testament, And for the people who lived in the first century, the kingdom of God was not just some kind of out there, abstract, ethereal hope. It was actually something very concrete. It was an expectation. The kingdom was an obsession for many of them even because it was rooted in the good old days. It was rooted in the stories that they heard over and over again. The stories when, of when Israel had a king. The stories of Samuel, and then probably not as so much Saul, but then David and Solomon. The good old days. When Israel, they had their land, and they had a great king, and the economy was booming, the stock market was doing well, like everything was going great for them. It was the days before the foreign superpowers came in, and attacked them, conquered them, and subjected them. And yet, God's people, they knew God's promise, that God had promised that those good old days would one day return. That just as they one time lived under a great king in his kingdom, so too, the day was coming when God was going to raise up a king in the line of David, who would establish his throne, who would vanquish the Romans, and who would rule for eternity, and it would be flourishing for all of his people. I mean, the kingdom of God, in many ways, it was a political hope for the Jews of the first century. Now, Jesus begins his ministry, and he, if you'll remember, one of the very first things he said publicly in his ministry was repent because... The kingdom is here. It's here. 
all the things you've been waiting for and longing for, they have now arrived. And then he starts teaching about the kingdom and he performs some miracles and he casts out demons. All of these things seem to validate that he is actually a man with some serious authority and he has announced that the kingdom is at hand. This is why the crowds flocked to him. It wasn't just because they wanted to see the miracles. It was because they had heard that he claimed to be the king and that the kingdom was coming and it was imminent. And so they were expecting and anticipating this kingdom revolution. And so when Jesus asked the crowds in Luke 13, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? All sorts of images would have come into people's minds. Like some people there, they would be thinking, oh, I know what it's like. It's like an army dressed in white linen with polished swords who are ready to go to war with Rome. Others, you know, for the more like fantasy-minded, they're like old, like Lord of the Rings kind of people. They'd be like, "Well, no, it's like a, it's like a pride of lions." That's what I think of when I think of the kingdom of God. It's a great pride of lions that's going to come and devour the hyenas and the jackals and restore peace on the plains. For others, they might have even had an image of like, "Oh, it's like a royal estate with a big, beautiful mansion made of cedars and of gold." And everything is well tended and in order and there are no weeds and there is peace everywhere. When Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? Most people had an image that would come into their minds. But I suspect no one was ready for the answer Jesus gave. He said, the kingdom of God, what is it like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Hmm. You understand, for the people who were hearing this the first time, it was like, in interesting choice, Jesus, a mustard seed. You know, mustard seeds are very tiny, it was the smallest of all known seeds in that day. We have a picture of one. They're actually like a lot smaller than even a peppercorn. They're incredibly, incredibly small. And everyone there that was listening, they, they were all familiar with mustard seeds. And so Jesus is like, you want to know what the coming glorious kingdom of God is like? It's like a mustard seed. Like it's planted and then it grows. And then birds perch in its branches. There had to be people there who were kind of scratching their heads. And then in verse 20, he says again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? And you know, some people are like, because that other one just didn't connect with me. Like, that's not an illustration. Maybe this time, I'll get a little closer. And then he says, it's like yeast. Yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through the dough. Yeast. Yeast is even smaller than a mustard seed. And not only that, like if you know your Old Testament, you know yeast was often used as a metaphor, a symbol for evil and wickedness. And Jesus is up here saying, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? 
It's like yeast. That a woman works into 60 pounds of flour, which I think you need about 40 pounds of water, something like that. So it's 100 pounds of dough. She works the yeast in, and then it does its thing, which is always amazing. We do pizza night most Friday nights at our home. We're not really bakers, but my wife makes the pizza. It's always amazing. You know, you like, you have the dough, you put a little yeast in those little packets, and then you just leave it for a few hours, and you come back, and it's three times the size. So think about this. It's 100 pounds yeast put in, and it works its way, does its thing uh, through all the dough. And Jesus is like, the kingdom's kind of like that. It's like the mustard seed, and it's kind of, it's kind of like the yeast. And it would have been very tempting for the people in the crowd to say, huh, I don't get it, but this is the way, like, he's a great preacher, I promise, but some, even the best, have duds sometimes. Like, this is the one that just doesn't really connect with me. I think a lot of times we do the same thing with this. We hear these parables and we think like, well, these are some of the more obscure, like mystical, metaphorical teachings of Jesus. And like, we kind of just push them to the side and we don't recognize how central these teachings were to Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include these parables. Because these parables were very important to Jesus. And it's almost certain that these were the things that he would teach over and over. He'd go to a new village, and you know, he had a standard things he was going to say to the crowds. This was in there. It wasn't something secondary, something kind of on the fringes of what he was talking about. It's very central to his message and his life and why he has come. And so... I want to consider with you two, two implications that we can draw from these parables and then two invitations. So we're going to try to wrap our minds. Why does Jesus use these? And then, okay, how do we, we bring this message to bear in our life? The implications. The first implication that Jesus is saying, that he's trying to communicate, is that the kingdom of God is unassuming. It's modest. Almost. You could even say that the kingdom of God is kind of an easy thing to miss. And the people, you know, they were expecting a kingdom, but they were expecting greatness and glory. And this is something Jesus teaches again and again. I have not come to bring... Or, to bring a kingdom that's going to meet your expectations of greatness and glory. It's definitely great and glorious, but in your eyes, it's going to seem unassuming, maybe even disappointing. The people, they were hungry just like we, just like we are hungry for a righteous political leader who will heal the land. And so they thought for sure when the kingdom came, it would come with a lot of fanfare. You know, it's interesting, even in John 6, Jesus feeds 5,000. The crowds are, they're not just amazed, they're stunned. Oh, the guy who said he's coming to bring the kingdom, guess what? He just gave us all a free lunch, and we watched the miracle happen. And John tells us that the people started like whispering and saying to each other, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. But Jesus knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. 
Do you get the modesty, the, the unassuming nature of Jesus' kingdom? You would expect, hey, we've got the momentum, we've got the crowds, everyone's hyped up, like, let's roll. Let's go. But Jesus sees that they want to crown him king, and he's like, I've got to get away. I've got to run to the mountains. In Luke 17, similarly, a Pharisee, the Pharisee's trying to wrap his mind around Jesus' teaching on the kingdom because Jesus is announcing it, but then he doesn't seem to have this urgency to actually bring it or to, to draw the sword. And so the Pharisee's like, Jesus, when exactly is the kingdom coming? And Jesus answered, the coming of the kingdom of God, it's not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is actually in your midst. Years ago, 15 years ago, I went on a mission trip to Spain. It was actually where I met dear friend Larry McCrary, who many of you know. And uh, the first night, he announced that we were going to go to a tapas restaurant, uh, which I misheard him at first, which made it a very uncomfortable experience for me. Uh, I'm like, I'm on a mission trip. This is weird. I really, I did not understand. I'm like, I don't know you. What is, because I, I, like I grew up in suburban Ohio. I'd never heard of tapas before. And uh, so he's explaining like, oh, it's an amazing meal, small plates. It's a bunch of small plates. And so I'm really looking forward to it, long flight eager. We go to the restaurant, and I'm like so eagerly anticipating these tapas. And they bring this kind of bread, uh, like I guess as an appetizer, at least that's what's going on in my mind, but it had this kind of like almost tomato soup on it, which I was like, uh, uh, I'm not going to get full on this. I'm waiting for the tapas. And then they brought a plate of olives, and I was like, nope, I'm holding off. And everyone else is sitting there eating, and finally, Larry, like, looks at me. He's like, are you going to eat? And I said, oh, no, I'm waiting on the tapas. <laughs> he said, these are the tapas. They're right in front of you. And it was this, like, oh, right here. It's kind of what happens with Jesus and this Pharisee. When's the kingdom coming? And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? I cast out demons. I just healed a woman who was bent over for 18 years. The kingdom is, it's right in your midst. But you see, the people couldn't see it. They were expecting this great, glorious, victory, victorious battle over Rome. And so while Jesus, sure, he's doing these miracles. And the, the miracles are wonderful, but you've got to understand for them, it's like, yeah, this is great. You healed the lady. When are we dealing with the real issues, Jesus? When are we dealing with Caesar and his oppressive taxes and his hatred of our way of life? And he's like, no, the kingdom is actually here. See, the kingdom, it's, it's unassuming. I really struggled. I think that's the best word. It's unassuming. And this, this is how God tends to work. God tends to work not so much in the whirlwind as he does in the still, small voice. Doesn't mean he never works in the spectacular and dramatic ways. 
like the Exodus. That was a pretty big one. But through most of the Bible and through most of human history, God, the way he brings about his kingdom, his healing reign in the world, it's in an unassuming, small, modest ways. And this this is going to be especially apparent in the weeks and months ahead for the disciples here. Because remember when he tells them this. They're on their way to Jerusalem. And they think they're going to Jerusalem for Jesus' coronation, but really they're going for his crucifixion. They're eager to get there. I mean, this is why Peter draws the sword when the Romans come. He's like, all right, finally, they drew first, let's go. And then Jesus is like, put your sword away. And this long-anticipated and hoped-for king is going to die a brutal, bloody, tragic death. And to the average person in the first century, while the crucifixion would certainly be grotesque and tragic, it would also be a, a rather ordinary and even insignificant event. Like in Rome, people were crucified every day. People would look at this man Jesus, who was a good teacher, but he got on the wrong side of Caesar or Herod or whoever, and then he got ground up in the gears of Rome. Even his death is unassuming. I mean, for us, it's not because the cross is what it is. It's the symbol for us. But in that day, it's like, man, people are put to death all the time. And the disciples are going to be really confused. Because they didn't understand the kingdom of God. It's like a mustard seed. It's like yeast. You know, we as people, we love the spectacular movies with $100 million budgets, concerts with smoke and fire and the performances. And I think we put those expectations on God when God himself has come and said, that's not really how I work or my kingdom works. My kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's like yeast. It's unassuming. It's really easy to miss. But there's a second part to that. The first, the first implication is that it's unassuming. But the second part of both of these parables is that the kingdom of God is unstoppable. And you really have to hold both of these things together. Sometimes people are like, well, this is all just about the kingdom of God being small. Well, it is about the kingdom of God being small, but if that's all it was like, then Jesus would say, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like a mustard seed. You know, peace be with you. But he didn't. He said it's like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seed that you plant in your garden, and then you give it time, and then it grows into a tree that could be 8, 10, even 12 feet tall, the largest thing that would exist in your family's garden. It would grow so big that birds would nest in it. Same thing with the yeast. It's this tiny yeast that you, you put into a hundred pounds of dough and you think, how is this little amount of yeast going to impact this hundred pounds of dough? And you do it and then like at first you're like, I don't think it's doing anything. Is this working? I don't know if it's working. I think we got bad yeast. No, you didn't. You just got to wait a little bit. And then the next thing you know, it's worked its way through all hundred pounds. 
Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God, it's unassuming, but it's unstoppable. Yeah, I'm going to die a death, a very common, tragic, ordinary death of a criminal, and you all are going to think that that's the end because you have these grand expectations of exactly how the kingdom should work. And what I'm telling you is I'm going to die and you're going to think it's over, but trust me, like the seed is going to grow. The yeast is going to do its work. And as we know, Jesus died on a cross. All the disciples are abandoning him, you know, making plans for the rest of their life. Well, this turned out to be a dud. And then three days later, he walks out of the grave. He appears to them. He commissions them. He gives them a mission to the world. He pours out his spirit upon them. And then that band of disciples goes and begins to transform the world, just like yeast in the dough. We have to remember, Luke is writing this 20, 30 years after Jesus spoke it. And this gospel is actually volume one of a two-volume work. Volume two is Acts. And you can just imagine Luke, as he's writing this, he's like, the kingdom of God's like a mustard seed. I wonder what that means. And then he's got in his mind the book of Acts where the gospel is going forth to Jerusalem, Judea, and to the very ends of the earth. And he's like, listen, it's going to be hard for you to understand, but he actually, Jesus is faithful to his word. His kingdom, it's unstoppable. Entire cities, regions were turned upside down by the leaven of the gospel. And here we are 2,000 years later, worshiping Christ on this dreary, rainy morning alongside billions of others who will worship him on this day. The kingdom is unassuming, but it's unstoppable. And we are the evidence that God is always at work, that he is faithful to his promises, that that he can be trusted, that he is in control, and that none of his purposes will be thwarted because God is always at work. He's at work here in St. Matthew's. He's at work in Mississippi and Malawi and Myanmar and Melbourne and all over the world. Like the the mustard seed, the yeast, it's, it's done its thing. Do you think the disciples had any, any, were they even, could they begin to imagine? Do you think Peter, he'd probably be horrified if he knew some of the things that we said about him, but it was actually things in the Bible. The 2,000 years later, billions of people would be like, oh, I know you. I read your story. You see, the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, it's unassuming. It's, it's going to be like disappointing to you at first, probably. But it's unstoppable. It's the most powerful thing there is in the entire world. And so two invitations that I want to put before you from this text. The first one is let the promise of these parables serve as an anchor for your soul. Let the promises of these parables serve as an anchor for your soul. The waves of this world are rough. And when we look at the world, it can be really tempting to think that evil is winning and the cause of Christ is losing. 
when we see the proliferation of evil, the rampant disregard for God's word and his ways, the countless ways that our society finds, like how inventive and creative our society can be in calling evil things good and good things evil. The disregard for life, the... the moral compass that just seems to be broken, it's really easy to think, and I mean this literally, that society is going to hell in a handbasket. It's easy to grow discouraged. But these parables tell us, don't grow discouraged. This is nothing new. God has not abandoned us. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. You know, if you look at the life of Jesus, he could have said the same thing. What's going on in this world? If you look at the life of Paul, man, the world's really, really going downhill. I mean, they were selling idols in the marketplaces there, you know, like literal idols. You look at the early church, do you think that they really lived in better times than we do? They all suffered and were martyred for their faith. And they didn't wring their hands at the sky saying, what is happening to this world? Instead, they put their trust in God, knowing that his kingdom is like a mustard seed. Think of the early church. Think of those early Christians when they were being fed to the lions. They didn't protest. They didn't scream. You know what they did? They sang hymns. Like the one we, they're there singing, we will, we will feast in the house of Zion as the Romans are unleashing lions and tigers to devour them. Why? Because they knew the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And it takes a while, but it's going to grow into a tree that's going to house all of the nations. They trusted God knowing, well, yeah, this doesn't make a lot of sense that we're being fed to the lions. It also doesn't make a lot of sense that God would die on a tree, but but here we are. And he is accomplishing his purposes. You see, the, the promise of these parables can serve as an anchor for your soul because the real challenge of the Christian life, it's not just the bad things, it's it's when we don't understand the bad things. Like, I'm convinced it's not just the hardships we experience. It's when we experience hardships and then we can't make sense of them. That's the real stinger. That's the knockout blow for many of us. We say, where is God? Well, this passage tells us he's there, but his kingdom is small. It's unassuming. It's easy to miss. But it's also unstoppable. And when you understand both of these things, one, it gives you very sober expectations, but two, it gives you an unshakable hope, which enables you, when you have both of those things, like I'm not expecting things to be easy, but I know who my God is, I know whom I've believed in, and I know he is able to keep me, that enables you to be what we we call these days a non-anxious person. It's like, it's okay. Or even it's not okay. We're going to be okay. God is in control. 
I don't know about you, when I meet people like that, I'm like, I want to hang out with you more. There's something very powerful about a person who can show up in a world that feels like it's gone mad and they're not freaking out and they're not checked out. I think the, the message of these parables can do that for us. So number one, let the promise of these parables serve as an anchor for your soul. And then the second application from these two parables is I'm speaking specifically to Christians here. I think these parables are, are a very great encouragement to us to not grow weary in doing good. Because the kingdom's like a mustard seed and it's like yeast. Don't grow weary in doing good. It's, <laughs> I've said this to you before, but why would Paul tell us don't grow weary in doing good? Well, probably because it'd be easy to grow weary and tempting to grow weary in doing good. And I think part of the reason for this is that the New Testament, it's filled with these big, grand words and concepts like kingdom and victory and resurrection and eternal life. I mean, glorious concepts. We're like, yes, and amen. And then we go to church or Bible study, and it can be great, but it just doesn't have quite that glorious shine. It it actually feels pretty ordinary, unless you're going to like a passion conference, you know? And then it's like, oh, this is amazing. But when you actually like just go to be with Christians, you're like, yeah, how was it? Uh, I mean, it was good, but it's like they're just kind of humans like I am. Not worldly, but just ordinary. During my study this week, I came across a quote from a German pastor, Helmut Thielicke, who entered the pastorate in Germany during Hitler's rise to power in World War II. It's kind of a long quote, but uh, man, it, it hit something within me. He said, when I became a pastor and conducted my first Bible study hour, I went into it with the determination to trust in Jesus' saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. I said these words to myself in order to assure myself that even Hitler and his dreadful power machine were merely puppets hanging by strings in the hands of this mighty Lord. And then in the Bible study hour, I was faced by two very old ladies and a still older organist. He was a very worthy man, but his fingers were palsied. And this was embarrassingly apparent in his playing. And he says, basically, so so I thought to myself, this was the extent of the accomplishment of this Lord, to whom all power in heaven and earth has been given, supposedly given, and outside marched the battalions of youth who were subject to altogether different lords. This was all he had to set before me on that evening. I read that. I felt that. I felt that before. You know, you're like, you see what's happening in the world and, and the, you know, the gears of this world, and it seems so powerful. And then you come to the church, and it's like, that's wonderful. Not to you guys, other churches. And you're like, it's wonderful, but it's kind of like, I don't know. Like, I, how is this ever going to compete with that? And that's what he's saying. He's at this Bible study, and it's two old ladies and someone even older. And he's looking and he's like, what hope do we have? Hitler and his tens of thousands of soldiers are marching down the street. 
and here we are with really bad music. But you know what? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's like yeast. Because Hitler and his army, now they're, they're just a disgrace in the pages of history. But Jesus Christ, who this pastor, those two old ladies, and that organist worshipped that day, he's still ruling and reigning. Like he used, think about it, we are talking about what happened in that little pathetic Bible study. Here we are, 80 years later, standing amazed at the faithfulness of our God. So I just want to say, you do not know, you never know what God is going to do through you. You never know how one small act of faithfulness, one conversation, one like slowing down at work and talking to your coworker who doesn't know Christ and showing them kindness, showing interest in their life, one opportunity of talking to your kids, even when it feels like maybe they don't want to talk to me, showing interest in them, asking them questions, walking across the street, serving communion here, like you never know what God is going to do because the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's all these tiny seeds and, and yet God waters them and grows them. And he's been doing it for 2,000 years and he promises to continue to do that until his kingdom comes in its fullness. Thanks for listening. For more information about our church, visit sojourneast.com.